This is Guns and Butter. But I think the U.S. Is, is very much bent on preventing any state from competing with the U.S. anywhere in the globe, even uh, on the periphery of these other states. You know, that Russia is not even allowed to compete with the U.S. on its own borders. China is not allowed to compete with the U.S. in the South China Sea, even though it's called the South China Sea. Iran is not allowed to compete with the U.S. in the Persian Gulf. You know, Persia is not allowed to control the Persian Gulf. This explains a lot of what's happening. The U.S. really is uh, at war with, with pretty much the whole world at this point. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dan Kovalik. Today's show, Russiagate, scapegoating Russia to justify endless war. Dan Kovalik is a labor and human rights lawyer. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He is the author of The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, How the CIA and the Deep State Have Conspired to Vilify Russia. Dan Kovalik is the featured speaker Thursday, September 7th at St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley, starting at 7.30 p.m. This event is part of the KPFA Speaker Series. Today we discuss the Cold War, the allegations against Russian President Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation, the Yeltsin years in Russia, Nicaragua and Colombia, Afghanistan, Yemen, U.S. imperialism, and endless war. Dan Kovalik, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. In your book, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, how the CIA and the deep state have conspired to vilify Russia. You point out, of course, that the vilification of Russia is really nothing new and dates back a couple of centuries. What does seem to be new, though, is the vilification of the Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Historically, do you know of any other Russian leader who has been demonized the way Putin has come under attack in the West? Certainly not a sitting leader. You know, no one that I know of has been attacked while they were the head of the Russian state. Uh, as Stephen F. Cohen uh, has pointed out, uh, in fact, there's been a lot of examples of U.S. presidents uh, having warm relationships uh, with the heads of Russia or during the first Cold War, uh, the heads of the Soviet Union. So, you know. Uh, Kennedy ended up having a warm relationship with Khrushchev. Uh, Nixon had a good relationship with Brezhnev. Uh, Reagan obviously became very close to Gorbachev, and they they ended the Cold War uh, together. And initially, you might recall that George W. Bush uh, considered Putin a friend. In fact, he said, I looked into uh, Putin's eyes and I saw his soul. And so... That is the typical uh, type of relationship with uh, um, standing leaders of Russia. And and yeah, now, of course, as you mentioned, um, it's something new where where, uh, Putin has been vilified um, to the point that I've never seen any other leader vilified, truthfully. 
What have the charges against Russia and Putin consisted of, and who and what organizations have been making these accusations? Well, again, this has been going on for some time. Um, Things even began to chill during George W. Bush's um, tenure, in part because uh, while Putin was the first leader. I'll just remind folks, world leader, to call George W. Bush and express his condolences after 9-11 and offer help in Afghanistan um, with Bush's operations, and he did give that help. Um, Things did begin to sour in 2003 when Putin did not go along with the invasion of Iraq, um, which he saw as uh, wrongheaded and something that would only increase terrorism. And of course, history has shown that Putin was absolutely correct in that. Under Obama, there was a a thaw under Medvedev, uh, who was president during some of Obama's uh, tenure. In fact, um, uh, Obama said he wanted to reboot um, or reset relations with Russia under uh, Medvedev. But things got sour with Medvedev and and Putin for a number of reasons, but in large part because of the Libya invasion that Obama was one of the leaders of. You might recall uh, that the U.S. went to the Security Council to set up a no-fly zone over Libya under the pretense of protecting human rights. Um, By the way, all of the justifications it gave for that Uh, no-flight zone quickly fell apart. But nonetheless, uh, Russia and China agreed to abstain uh, on the vote for the no-fly zone resolution under the condition that uh, the no-fly zone would not morph into regime change. Of course, it did quickly morph into regime change um, with Gaddafi being overthrown. Uh, He was famously murdered after being sodomized, all on video, which one could watch on YouTube if they have the stomach. And apparently Putin did watch the video and was repulsed by it. And um, this is when I think Putin himself begins to really distrust um, the United States and things begin to go sour. So this has been a long line of, of incidents um, and people who have, have led us down uh, the path to, uh, to where we are now. Donald Trump has been accused of somehow colluding with Vladimir Putin and Russia since well before the presidential election. Trump is now in the eighth month of his presidency. What concrete evidence of this Russian collusion has been confirmed? Well, very little of it. First of all, John Pilger, a journalist I really respect, said, uh, he said, there's not even really allegations, you know, much less proven ones. But, But what are the allegations. One, the kind of the font of, of it all is the allegation that uh, Putin was behind the alleged hacking of uh, the DNC emails, Podesta's emails that end up being released by WikiLeaks. There's little to no evidence, truthfully, that Russia did it. In fact, uh, there's a recent uh, study that was put out by the uh, veteran intelligence professionals for sanity 
who did a study saying that they, in fact, believe that the DNC computer was not hacked at all, but that it was leaked, that someone on the inside copied the emails, um, put them on a disk or flash drive, and that they were stolen that way, not through a remote hack. And so that's part of the story. Again, the font of all this has seemed to fall apart. So then all we're left with are alleged meetings. Yeah, most recently, and this, this came out this week, there's uh, some emails that were released uh, where uh, some real estate mogul who's uh, from Russia claimed he could help Trump get elected and, and that part of this process through Putin and that part of this process would involve uh, Trump's building a uh, a new property in Russia, I believe a new hotel. Um, and a lot of people have made hay of this, saying, hey, this guy said, hey, I can get you in the White House uh, with the help of Putin. And this proves, you know, collusion. But actually, um, there's a story today which kind of points out the obvious. If you, if you look at the Washington Post story on this, what's clear is nothing happened with this claim by this uh, intermediary. That is to say, the building, Trump's building, was never built in Russia. Um, the intermediary who, who says, I can help you get elected through Putin, admits in the same emails, and this is in you know the mainstream press now, that once Trump's campaign began in earnest sometime in November to December of 2015, all of his efforts around the hotel and, um, and Putin ended. That is to say, the story collapses on itself, and one sees the headline, which is, hey, you know, there's this Russian expat that bragged he could help Trump get elected through Putin, but it just turned out this was a, a, a hollow brag. And again, most of these incidents fall apart when you really look at them. You know, the bottom line is always nothing happened. And so I think we will see very little to no evidence about this type of uh, of collusion. Um, but that hasn't stopped the press, of course, from obsessing about it 24-7. And what organizations and people, in addition to the mainstream media, are lobbying these charges against Russia colluding with with the Trump election, and what about the hacks of, um, of the DNC emails? You've you've mentioned that. Now, who else besides the mainstream media keep lobbying these charges? Well, of course, you have the Democratic Party, and particularly the folks aligned with Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party, um, who obviously are trying to make political hay out of this, and and we know from the book Shattered. Uh, that came out this year that uh, John Podesta himself, right after the election, um, came up with the idea to blame Hillary's loss on Russia for obvious reasons. Uh, if she had any chance of running again, uh, it was seen as convenient to blame you know another country instead of blaming Hillary herself for running a poor campaign, which I think 
she did. I mean, the other interesting fact is uh, Comey's now become this hero because uh, he started going after Trump for the Russia collusion. So you have Comey, you have other folks in the FBI, you have folks in the CIA who made it clear that they do not want to rapprochement with Russia. Uh, they made it clear that Trump was wrong in seeking such a detente with Russia. And it seems that all these groups together in the press have succeeded in preventing um, a detente with Russia. So when Trump meets with Putin at the G20 recently, for example, um, one, it's like a big deal. It's somehow um, treasonous that he even met him, especially because I guess they found out he had a secret uh, one-hour meeting that folks didn't know about to begin with, again, which is fairly typical for heads of state. But in any case, instead of being congratulated for meeting with Putin and coming to some agreements on cooperation in Syria and the Ukraine, um, Trump is largely criticized uh, for, for meeting with Putin. And then right after this, Congress um, overwhelmingly approves new a new round of sanctions against Russia right after the president agrees with Putin to to act cooperatively um again clearly intended to derail any chance of of Trump and Putin uh working together on anything so it seems to me there's a lot of folks in the government uh including in the congress uh both republican and democrat and in the press who do not want to see any good relationship uh, with Russia. Now, why do you think that is? Obviously, the Democratic Party uh, doesn't want a rapprochement with Russia. The intelligence agencies don't seem to want it, or a large part of the intelligence agencies. The media has uh, gotten on the bandwagon, of course. Uh, Then there's a question about the military-industrial complex. Where do they stand on this? Why is it that all of these uh, powerful forces, in your opinion, do not want to have good relations with the Russian Federation? Well, I think, um, I think. Well, of course, if we start with the military-industrial complex, um, there's obvious reasons there. You know, obviously, um, they benefit from a war, and that's becoming a huge part of of the U.S. economy is war. Um, in fact, uh, Congress ended up giving Trump more uh, more money in the military budget than he even asked for, and he was already asking for an increase, which was equivalent to 80% of Russia's entire military budget. Meanwhile, Putin has announced a 25% decrease in his military, I'll note. I'm speaking with human rights attorney and author Dan Kovalik. Today's show... Russiagate, scapegoating Russia to justify endless war. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Um, there are obviously vested interests in having war all the time. In fact, they used to say, you know, the business of the U.S. is business. I think the business of the U.S. is now war. And, you know, you see us fighting on multiple fronts in wars that uh, seem to go on without end. Afghanistan, of course, is an example. Um, and they seem to go on without end uh, by design. And again, a rapprochement with Russia would risk um, 
possibly peace breaking out, which which folks don't want. So I think that's one thing that's happening. I think the other thing that's happening is that um, a lot of folks in power and in, in, in the ruling class see that, that the economic system is in grave crisis. Um, we had, of course, the huge recession of 2008, which was you know, nearly catastrophic. We really haven't recovered since then, though, you know, there's claims that we have, but it's clear we haven't. Certainly the people haven't recovered. Um, And I think that there is a desire to maybe, you know, reconfigure the globe so that the economic system will be saved. One, through war, but also... um, through more penetration of countries and their resources, and also by preventing countries like Russia and China, for example, from taking their own share of the world's resources. I mean, in essence, I think the U.S. wants to engage in more extreme uh, imperialist activity, for lack of uh, of a better term. I know that's not a, a term people like, imperialism. We're, we're an empire that we don't admit to ourselves. Um, but I think the U.S. is is very much bent on preventing any state from competing with the U.S. anywhere in the globe, even uh, on the periphery of these other states. You know that Russia is not even allowed to compete with the U.S. on its own borders. China is not allowed to compete with the U.S. in the South China Sea, even though it's called the South China Sea. Iran is not allowed to compete with the U.S. in the Persian Gulf. You know, Persia is not allowed to control the Persian Gulf. Um, you know, and so I, I think this explains a lot of, of what's happening, that, that the U.S. really, I think if one were objective about it, is uh, at war with, with pretty much the whole world at this point. And you see, you know, sanctions regime after sanctioning regime uh, being leveled against all sorts of countries now, military threats against all sorts of countries. Um, It's a very dangerous situation, Um, but it seems to be dangerous by design, really. You write that the vilification of Russia and the Russian president constitutes a new Cold War. What about the old Cold War? You write extensively about the original Cold War against the USSR. When did the Cold War against the USSR begin, and who initiated it? Well, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, first of all, I mean, I think the Cold War with a capital C and a capital W started right after World War II. Um, I believe, as other writers like William Bloom, who, who I really respect, believe that the opening shots of, of, the, of the first Cold War um, was the U.S.'s atomic uh, uh, atom bomb attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that those were not aimed at Japan, who, who was in fact trying to surrender to the U.S. despite what we've been told in history books, but it was a signal um, more to the Soviet Union that we had these weapons, and uh, it was a signal for the Soviet Union to keep in line. And I think. Um, that was the opening shot of of the Cold War. Again, just as World War II is ending, and we were allies, obviously, with the Soviet Union during World War II. Um, and so we wasted no time in 
in beginning hostilities with them. And again, um, of course, very quickly, um, we uh, begin hostilities uh, in the Korean Peninsula as well. In 1948, though, again, we're told 1950, but really in 1948, we start to help uh, Japan and pro-Japanese um, forces in Korea um, try to reestablish uh, Japanese colonial rule in Korea, and this leads to to the conflict there. And so I think we can trace um, the Cold War as we think about it back to that point, but we can even go farther back than that. I mean, I think folks have to remember that um, the U.S. and a number of other capitalist countries invaded the Soviet Union right after the revolution. Um, the revolution being, of course, in October of 1917 by the old calendar, by the new calendar, was November 7, uh, 1917. A number of capitalist countries, including the United States, invaded uh, Russia in 1918 to try to strangle the revolution in its crib. And so one could trace the Cold War even as far back as 1918. So this has been going on for quite some time. But again, the whole raison d'etre or, or what we were told was the raison d'etre of the Cold War was to fight communism. Um, and so the Russians thought um, that if they would give up socialism – that the U.S. and the West would welcome them back into the West with open arms. And that never happened. Um, the U.S. seemed to never want peace uh, with Russia, whether they were socialist or communist or capitalist. And the Russians learned that the hard way after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Um, they were never admitted back into the community of nations. And I think that uh, the U.S. bears great responsibility for that, if not sole responsibility for that fact. And I think we need to, to go back and look at that history and, and, and the U.S.'s own role in continuing hostilities with Russia when that original causes bell eye communism uh, went away. You write that the U.S. forced the worst economic policies on the Russians, encircled Russia with troops and military bases after promising not to, and now the U.S. resents them for having their own sovereignty. What kind of economic shape is Russia in today? Well, uh, first of all, just to go over those facts, um, when the Cold War was ending and Gorbachev and Reagan agreed to uh, to the reunification of Germany, which was a big deal for Russia, of course, because Russia had lost about 27 million people to the Germans during World War II. Um, Gorbachev agreed to the reunification of Germany in return for the promise, and Secretary of State James Baker made this promise explicitly, that NATO would not move one inch east of Germany. In fact, as you noted, uh, NATO uh, very quickly moved eastward and is now up to the border of, of Russia. And so Russia is, in fact, uh, surrounded by NATO uh, in a way that the U.S. is not surrounded by any Russian or pro-Russian troops in this hemisphere. 
And meanwhile, uh, as you say, um, during the Yeltsin years, Bill Clinton and his cabal, for lack of a better word, um, imposed upon Russia very draconian uh, neoliberal policies, which devastated that country. Um, a couple million people uh, died of, of, of preventable illnesses because of those economic policies. And it's taken a long time for Russia to get back on its feet since then. It is starting to get back on its feet. Um, again, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the life expectancy in Russia went down to the low 50s from somewhere in the range of the 70s during the, the height of the Soviet Union. It is now going back up to the low 70s under Putin. And so while they have their problems, certainly, under Putin, things have gotten better economically. And again, as Stephen F. Cohen, who I often cite, I, I really respect him. He's He was friends with Gorbachev, an advisor to Gorbachev. He's been a Russian expert for many years. He said it's really Putin's having gotten the bear back on its feet that uh, galls the United States uh, more than anything. And he has done that. And, you know, and whatever you say about the guy, uh, he has done that. And, and he has about 80% approval rating in Russia as a result. And again, this is apparently unacceptable uh, to the U.S. You know, one uh, shocking statement that you made in your book that I had no idea of is that you write that presently the GDP of the Russian Federation is really about the equivalent of Portugal or Spain. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. I mean, again, they, they their economy shrunk uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The collapse of the Soviet Union in many ways uh, was tragic. I, I say that in my book. Um, I don't apologize for saying that. And by the way, a lot of Reaganites agree with me on that. Uh, Paul Craig Roberts amongst them. And there was a lot of devastation. And again, uh, they are getting back on their feet. But yeah, they're not anywhere near where they used to be economically or militarily. And I note that in the book, and I note it now, only to say that uh, they are not a threat to the United States. They are not even a serious competitor with the U.S. in the world, maybe at their periphery, uh, maybe in isolated areas, but, but certainly not in the vast um, scope of, of world affairs. They just can't compete uh, given the size of relative size of our economy and military over theirs. Now, we spoke earlier about the accusation that uh, the Russian Federation was hacking into DNC email, etc., to try and influence the the election of Donald Trump. What can you tell us about Yeltsin's failing 1996 presidential campaign. Did the U.S. meddle in that election? Yes, and uh, and again, we, we need only look at uh, Time Magazine's cover story after Yeltsin's victory, um, which explains a lot of this, uh, how politicos associated with Bill Clinton uh, went into Russia to salvage Yeltsin's campaign, because Bill Clinton was very dead set on Yeltsin winning the 1996 election. And as we now know, uh, according to Dick Morris, who worked for Bill Clinton, 
he recently said that Bill Clinton himself personally helped Yeltsin with his campaign, talked to him uh, at times almost daily to to advise him as to, as to how to run his campaign in in great detail. And and again, you had at least these three. Um, campaign advisors um, associated with Clinton who went to Russia with $250,000, and they helped um, Yeltsin with his campaign at a time when his approval rating was at about 6%. And they helped uh, Yeltsin in conducting dirty tricks, which uh, helped him win the election, although even with that said, uh, Dmitry Medvedev has said that uh, Yeltsin really didn't win the election. It was stolen from the Communist Party, which um, arguably still won the election. But nonetheless, Yeltsin, um, by hook or by crook, and with uh, the help of Clinton and his friends, managed to at least claim victory, and he continued to be president, again, with, with amazing help from Clinton and his campaign aides. I'm speaking with human rights attorney and author Dan Kovalik. Today's show, Russiagate, scapegoating Russia to justify endless war. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, uh, Boris Yeltsin, as president of the Russian Federation, oversaw, of course, the selling off of Russian state property, the privatization of it, the rise of the oligarchs. As you have pointed out, uh, Bill Clinton was a big supporter. The U.S. was a big supporter of Yeltsin. And you mentioned in your book the Duma catastrophe. What was the Duma catastrophe? Yeah, and I actually recall this happening at the time. Um, it's a pretty incredible thing. So Yeltsin, again, who was not popular, who was imposing austerity measures on his own people, which were devastating to the people, though very popular with folks here in the United States, particularly Bill Clinton. Um, at some point, there is a huge pushback against Yeltsin's um, economic policies by the Communist Party, which to this day is, I believe, still the largest party in Russia. And they ended up uh, sitting in um, the White House. At that time, the the Duma or the the parliament was um, housed in what was called the White House. And they had to sit in there um, to protest Yeltsin, and they were very popular in the sit-in because people were very unhappy with the economic policies. And uh, Yeltsin tried to starve them out, cut off the electricity and water to the place. They still wouldn't leave, and so he started shelling his own parliamentary building, again, at that time, the White House. Um, it is unknown how many people died during that attack, but it, it it's easily a couple hundred and could be a couple thousand people. And it's a time, and I remember this very vividly, at the time, uh, the Western media applauded Yeltsin for shelling his own parliament. And I mentioned in the book, I said, you know, this was like a Tiananmen Square type um, operation that Yeltsin conducted, but at this you know, in this case, the West was rooting for the tanks. Uh, 
And I imagine the Russian people don't forget that too easily. And and it, I think Americans need to, you know, when we think about these allegations um, against Putin and Russia in terms of alleged election meddling, even if you assume the worst in terms of the allegations, they, they pale in comparison to the type of meddling the U.S. was doing um, at that time. So, in any case... You write about the demodernization and economic collapse after the dissolution of the USSR approximately 1992 to 1998 under Boris Yeltsin and supported by Bill Clinton. Now, another thing that Boris Yeltsin did after this uh, Duma catastrophe or the shelling of their own legislature, he put in something called the Law on the Federal Security Service, FSB. And didn't these amount to police state measures? Yes. Um, again, he, because of his incredible unpopularity, he began to reestablish what some human rights groups said, essentially the Soviet-type security system which the U.S. had always been critical of as a repressive state apparatus. Well, he began to reestablish that to keep himself in control. And so, again, when we talk about Putin's alleged authoritarianism, uh, whatever Putin is, we have to trace back to those days under Yeltsin, who begins to recreate the security state in Russia that, that Putin ends up inheriting. But again, when Yeltsin was running that security state, you know, in in ways that benefited the West by allowing this selling off of Russia's uh, industries, um, no one cared. Uh, now all of a sudden, we care about democracy in in Russia, though, you know, or at least we claim to. In what ways did the Cold War benefit the United States and its foreign interventionist policies? Has the U.S. been able to intervene more easily internationally by using the Cold War with the USSR as a pretext? Yes, well, and I think it was very effective. You know, anytime the U.S. wanted to intervene in another country, um, like Nicaragua, I talk about Nicaragua for me is is a very um, uh, I have a lot of emotion around it. I I like a lot of folks. I visited Nicaragua during the Contra War that the U.S. supported. Um, you know, here's a very poor country at that time, still is. Uh, had not even three million people, and the U.S. under Ronald Reagan supported this very brutal terrorist war against Nicaragua, and that's what it was. It was a terrorist war. The countries were terrorists. And, of course, it justified it on the basis of the Soviet threat. Well, there was no Soviet threat in Nicaragua. Never was, never will be. Um, the Sandinistas, again, whatever you say about them, were an indigenous organization that overthrew a U.S.-backed dictator in Anastasio Somoza. Um, they came to power through a guerrilla war. Uh, that they themselves fought. They didn't have Russian troops who helped them. And again, the U.S.'s war against Nicaragua was not about fighting communism. It was about reestablishing a dictatorship that the U.S. had supported for decades and had actually installed. And uh, But yeah, every time we wanted to attack another country in order to 
maintain our economic dominance over the world, we would always blame the Soviet Union, um, whether they had anything to do with that country or not. And many times they had nothing to do with it. Sometimes they would come in later because the country under huge duress would call for Soviet assistance, but the war would begin before the Soviets had anything to do with it. And, you know, one great example, and, and this should be remembered by people if they ever knew it, um, is Afghanistan. You know, the myth around Afghanistan is that the U.S. supported the Mujahideen, including Osama bin Laden, in order to get the Soviets out of Afghanistan after the Soviet invasion. In fact, that is not true. We now know from uh, Brzezinski, who was the national security advisor to Jimmy Carter, that the U.S. was supporting the Mujahideen uh, before the Soviet Union invaded. And in fact, in order to precipitate a Soviet invasion, to give the Soviet Union their Vietnam, that was Brzezinski's words. And again, we justified it on the basis, oh, we have to fight the Soviet invasion. Well, that hadn't even happened yet. And so we see time and again, uh, not only us being lied into nearly every war we've ever fought, but in the case of the Cold War, effectively being lied to by, by saying that we were fighting uh, the Soviet Union. You write extensively about U.S. interventions, overthrows of governments, and invasions since the beginning of the Cold War. You traveled to two Central and South American countries, Nicaragua and Colombia, and you've uh, touched on Nicaragua. What were your experiences in these two countries? Well, again, in Nicaragua, which was really, uh, you know, my experience there really changed my view of the world and the U.S. role in it. And I went there, I went there in 1987 during the height of the Contra War, spent time in a war zone there. And I went with the basic belief that whatever the U.S.'s uh, faults, that it was essentially a force for good in the world, even if we erred once in a while. And I left not believing that anymore. I really believed we were quite the opposite, that we were a bully that was willing to wage this war against, again, against a people in one of the poorest countries in the hemisphere in retaliation for them overthrowing a U.S. dictatorship. That is to say that I came to the conclusion that far from defending democracy and freedom around the world, the U.S. was trying to stop it. And I think if you look at U.S. history, you will see the U.S. do that time and again. And I was very moved by the Nicaraguans' tenacity, by their dignity in defending themselves against, obviously, a much more formidable force, the United States, and frankly, coming out uh, victorious, which is pretty incredible. In Colombia, which I still visit quite often, and I've been going there since 1999, I again see... U.S. intervention, very, very prominent there. The U.S. has been intervening very directly in Colombia for many decades, certainly um, since 1962 and even before, and in very uh, destructive ways, supporting a very repressive military, um, which itself supports um, paramilitaries, death squads, that the U.S. actually uh, helped to create uh, back in the 1960s. And again, uh, when folks talk about Venezuela and things happening there, I'm always amazed how they ignore 
the much greater human rights crisis in that neighboring Colombia, where you have thousands of trade union leaders who've been killed, and human rights leaders killed, indigenous leaders killed. Colombia has seven million internally displaced people, the largest internally displaced population on earth, even larger than Syria. And these are folks displaced largely by forces that the U.S. supports, either directly or indirectly. And yet, when was the last time you heard about that? For me, Colombia represents everything that's, that's frankly wrong with not only U.S. foreign policy, but how it's covered in the press. Every time something bad happens in Venezuela, we hear about it. And many times, in fact, how, how bad things are tend to be exaggerated in our press. Meanwhile, the terrible things that happen in Colombia, which I think has the worst human rights in the hemisphere, and many people agree with me, th those things are ignored. And for me, that reality has made me very skeptical about what I hear or read in the news about what the U.S. is doing around the world. I'm speaking with human rights attorney and author Dan Kovalik. Today's show, Russiagate, scapegoating Russia to justify endless war. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I want to quote from your book, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia. Quote, while the dreaded Putin has been president on and off since 1999, he did not stray beyond the old Soviet borders, and really not all that far until nearly the end of 2015. And there, of course, you're referring to Syria. During that same time, the U.S. has itself militarily intervened in Syria, both covertly and overtly, through major bombing raids, engaged in a major bombing campaign of Serbia, very close to Russia, overthrew the democratically elected government of Jean-Bertrand Aristide, invaded Afghanistan, which it has yet to leave, invaded Iraq, which it has yet to leave, engaged in what it termed anti-terrorist operations in Georgia, on the border of Russia, Djibouti, Kenya, Ethiopia, Yemen, and Eritrea engaged in military actions in Somalia, which ended up destabilizing that country for years to come, supported the coup against the democratic government of Zelaya in Honduras, and participated in the NATO invasion and dismantling of Libya, end quote. And here you're only referring to U.S. actions since 1999. How does this fit with the accusations of Russian expansionism? I think, I think Russian claims of Russian expansionism pale in comparison. I mean, I'm just always amazed when people say, hey, well, what about Putin in Ukraine? What about Putin in Syria? And pretty much the list ends there right there, right? And look at all the countries that we've, we've invaded. And by the way, these were all wars of choice. They weren't necessary. And the Physicians for Social Responsibility just released a study saying that in the U.S. wars in the Middle East since September 11, 2001, the U.S. has killed up to about 2 million people in the Middle East. If we go back to since 1990, 4 million people. 4 million people. And again, the idea that people are exercised 
about what Putin might be doing in the east part of Ukraine or in Syria, and yet seem utterly unconcerned about what the U.S. is doing throughout the globe, including, by the way, in Yemen right now. You know, Yemen has the worst humanitarian crisis on earth. Millions of people will die there. Millions. This is according to the United Nations. Through starvation, through disease, because of a war that Saudi Arabia uh, most prominently is fighting against Yemen, but with very critical support from the United States, including weaponry, logistical support, the mid-air refueling of its planes, which then go and bomb civilians in Yemen. Millions of people will die because of that war, which I would say if you asked one in 10,000 people, you'd be lucky to have one who even knew what was happening. And if they did, they wouldn't be able to explain what was happening there. Yet the press seems very unconcerned about that. Again, meanwhile, focusing on the couple conflicts that Putin may be involved in. And I just think it's that sort of disproportionate and frankly unfair media portrayals of, of, of what you know the U.S. and Russia are doing in the world relative to each other that I just find absolutely galling and confounding that they're able to get away with it, that people seem to buy it. They seem to have been convinced that well, there's a Russian under every bed and meanwhile seem unconcerned about what the U.S. is doing around the globe. It's also significant that when a story, let's say Russiagate, is repeatedly broadcast, that it crowds out other important news. And now you have just mentioned the war in Yemen. You point out that the war in Yemen is actually in its third year and that this war uh, began under Obama. What kind of support is the U.S. supplying to the Saudis for the attack on Yemen? And did the Clinton Foundation have any connection with the war in Yemen? Well, yes. As I note in the book, um, Hillary Clinton, uh, as Secretary of State, approved a major sale of fighter jets to Saudi Arabia just after uh, the Clinton Foundation received a huge uh, donation from Saudi Arabia, millions of dollars. Um, was that a quid pro quo? I don't know, but certainly there was the appearance of, of impropriety there that she was approving this weapon sale after uh, her foundation received a, a huge donation from Saudi Arabia. Uh, meanwhile, the U.S. has provided, uh, in addition to such fighter jets, uh, billions of dollars of, of military hardware, cluster bombs, which are being used uh, in Yemen. Again, helping Saudi Arabia find targets uh, to bomb in in, in Yemen. Uh, they're refueling the bombing uh, planes midair and also have helped uh, with the Saudi blockade against Yemen, which again is starving out uh, the people there. Again, according to the UN, 7 million people at least are on the verge of starvation. Meanwhile, almost 500,000 people are now suffering from cholera, again, all because of, of this war and this blockade, which the U.S. is intimately involved with. And again, this began under Obama, St. Obama, um, that everyone now looks back to so wistfully. Uh, and I understand why. I mean, obviously, Trump is a pretty reprehensible guy. But Obama did very reprehensible things, including in Yemen, including in Libya, which, by the way, in Libya, post-invasion, uh, which again was led by Obama and spurred on by Hillary Clinton, there are now slaves being 
uh, publicly sold on the streets of Libya. This is a fact. You can look it up. This makes the mainstream press once in a while. This was directly the result of that invasion that Obama was a key part of. And again, there's this weird thing in the U.S., which basically, if I'm a Democrat and a Democratic president does these horrible things, I don't care. I mean, that just seems to be a common reaction. But but actually, the, the opposite isn't necessarily true. That is to say, very curiously, while people find you know, much to criticize about Trump, and there is much to criticize him, but the one time he got a bump in his ratings, approval ratings, is after he launched 59 Tomahawk missiles against Syria earlier this year in response to an alleged chemical attack in Syria. It appears that on matters of war and peace, sadly, the American public is, is largely indifferent to it. Even though the things folks want, you know, better health care, bigger social safety net, jobs, etc., better infrastructure, um, those things are being sacrificed by the U.S., which has decided instead to spend trillions, trillions of dollars on wars, which have no benefit to the average American person. Um, under Obama, by the way, Obama began a trillion-dollar modernization of the U.S.'s nuclear weapon, weapon stockpile. And um, that's continued under Trump, that modernization, which according to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists um, appears designed uh, and intended to give the U.S. first strike capability, nuclear capability against Russia. I don't see anyone pushing the panic button about that. But it seems like if you were going to panic about anything, it would be about uh, the possibility of a nuclear war. You include in your book, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, a quote from, from Russian President Vladimir Putin, quote, Anyone who doesn't regret the passing of the Soviet Union has no heart. Anyone who wants it restored has no brains. End quote. The vast majority of Soviet citizens wanted to preserve the Soviet Union. Why do you think this is... And how has the collapse of the Soviet Union affected the working class worldwide? Well, I mean, they wanted the continuation in a referendum that was held in 1991 across the Soviet Union, showed about 78% for the support of the, of the Soviet Union, and the continuation of the Soviet Union. They supported it because, frankly, the Soviet Union, for all of its faults, brought a, a good standard of living to the people of of the Soviet Union, including Russia. It managed to defeat uh, Nazi Germany. It, and it brought great pride to, to the people, again, particularly of Russia, which obviously was the dominant country in the Soviet Union. And the collapse has not brought about the peace and prosperity that the Russians were promised or that any of the rest of us were. You know, once the Soviet Union collapsed and China, as a result, gave up really on its design for uh, socialism, or at least put it off for some time, um, this ends up opening huge markets for the West. And, and what, what happened was that the U.S. started massively offshoring its labor, causing devastation to this country in terms of jobs and good jobs. 
And the other thing the Soviet Union did, it did create a certain amount of balance in the world, which frankly is greatly needed at this time. Now, wasn't Russia and then later the USSR excellent allies of the United States in both world wars? Well, yes, of course. Um, I mean, in World War II, even to say they were good allies really understates what they were. I mean, folks have to remember the U.S. didn't enter the European theater in a serious way in World War II until 1944. You know, really, they kind of held back until the Russians had pretty much came close to defeating Hitler. You know, they really bore the brunt of the war in Europe. And... um, I think the world owes Russia debt for that effort, and they lost 27 million people in the process. And now, by the way, there's a huge revisionism that's been happening for years where now the U.S. claims, oh, we won the war and Britain won the war. Well, again, I'm not saying that they didn't play a role, um, but but now folks are trying to deny the substantial role that, that the Russia had in winning the war. And it's just – it's that sort of revisionism, which is crucial, by the way, to allowing us to continue to vilify Russia because if folks you know, remember the truth that, that Russia was so critical in defeating Nazism, it's, uh, it's much harder to claim that, that uh, Putin is the equivalent to Hitler, for example, which Hillary Clinton has claimed. Um, people are even trying to claim that… Putin somehow behind you know the alt right in the U.S. and the alt right demonstrations in Charlottesville when in fact Russia just recently uh, sponsored a, a you know anti fascist resolution in the U.N. which uh, the U.S. voted against. But again, if you don't remember what happened during World War II and what which country fought on which side, it's easier to be taken in by this sort of propaganda. In your book. The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, How the CIA and the Deep State Have Conspired to Vilify Russia. You quote George Keenan, State Department Director of Policy Planning in 1948, quote, Were the Soviet Union to sink tomorrow under the waters of the ocean, the American military-industrial establishment would have to go on, substantially unchanged, until some other adversary could be invented. Why do you think this is so? Well, again, because certainly since World War II, the U.S. economy has been based on on the military-industrial complex, uh, continuous warfare. And if you don't have enemies, you can't have wars. And so uh, the U.S. has constantly been in search for enemies. Um, again, when Russia, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it's a little difficult to claim it needed to fight Russia, so it came up you know, with other justifications for war, fighting drugs, fighting terrorism, when in fact the U.S. was in some ways promoting drugs and terrorism. Um, but yeah, the U.S. needs its scapegoats, and it needs its enemies to continue justifying spending more on its military than what, the next nine countries or so combined. Um no one would put up with that if if they thought there wasn't a reason for it. But people do put up with it, largely because they, I guess, buy that countries like Russia truly are a threat to the United States. And that's why I wrote the book, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, to argue, the fact, that Russia is not an enemy. 
and that this is um, being really foisted on us to justify conflicts that are not in our benefit. Dan Kovalik, thank you so much, and I look forward to meeting you in person on Thursday, September 7th in Berkeley. Thank you, Bonnie, and I appreciate the opportunity for this interview. I enjoyed it. Speaking with Dan Kovalik, today's show has been Russiagate, Scapegoating Russia to Justify Endless War. Dan Kovalik is a labor and human rights lawyer. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He is the author of The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, How the CIA and the Deep State Have Conspired to Vilify Russia. Dan Kovalik is the featured speaker Thursday, September 7th, at St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley, starting at 7.30 p.m. This event is part of the KPFA Speakers Series. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher. And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look with this side yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? 